Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. One of the great stories of the 2018 campaign was the emergence of Beto O'Rourke in Texas, uh, who kind of took the country by storm in his very competitive race with Ted Cruz for the United States Senate. That race became a foundation for a presidential campaign that is very much in the middle of the 2020 picture. I sat down with a former congressman in El Paso earlier this week for my CNN TV show. Here is the full conversation. Beto O'Rourke, so good to be with you here in El Paso, the historic Plaza Theater. Goes back... uh, to what, 1930? Yeah, right right about then and restored by the community in the face of imminent uh, demolition. Uh, community came together and, and saved this jewel, restored it, and, and now it's the pride of, of downtown El you ever play? Did your band ever play here? You ever play this thousand seat? Uh, no, no. Yeah. We were lucky to play a street corner uh, <laughs> or, or a small bar, but no, never, never the Plaza Theater. But it's, it's an honor to be with you and, and to be here in El Paso. Great to be here too. We, I only have one rule for you, which is this table, we take it everywhere. No jumping on this table. You got it. Okay, yes. So. Understood. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of, of show business, right before you announced, there was this Vanity Fair profile of you uh, with a big with an Annie Leibovitz uh, hero shot uh, on the cover. And the, and the headline got attention. It was a partial quote mm. from you saying, I was, I was born to be in this. What, what did you mean by that? Yeah. I have found my purpose in service. So playing in punk rock bands growing up was a ton of fun. Um, starting a small business in El Paso, a, a high-tech company in a place that you might not expect to find it. Um, Growing that business, uh, being able to serve the small business community here was incredibly fulfilling. But it wasn't until I was on city council and having these city council meetings every single Tuesday and then having a a town hall every Monday at the Village Inn on North Mesa with my constituents that I really felt as though I had found my calling. This is what I'm supposed to do in my life. I love being with people. Uh, I love working on an issue. I like the challenges that, that people put in, in front of you. Uh, I like finding the way that the guy who's pissed off at me um, and, and cannot stand the, the decision I've just made or is frustrated that we haven't gotten something done. How, how do I find a way to work with him so that we can get on the same page? And, and, and if we can't get to perfect, get to better than what we have today. Same in Congress, uh, same campaigning across the state of Texas. So I'm, I'm fulfilled. I, I feel like um, I'm at my highest and best use um, to my, my fellow citizens when I'm serving. Um, that's what I meant, but I, did, I but certainly did not lot, mean... There, there, there are a lot of ways... Yeah, you got, you got a little guff for it, be, and, and probably unfairly, because the whole quote was a little bit different. Right. But um, it seemed a little cheeky 
Uh, right, as though I were born. When you saw president. it, did you think that? Yeah, I was. I was. I was frustrated, to be honest with you. Yeah. That that was the. the well, welcome to the NBA, <laughs> man. Yeah, that that was the <laughs> quote that they chose to use. But um, how cool that Annie Leibovitz takes your picture, yeah. and that you get to meet her at all, um, and and get to spend some time with her. And grateful for Joe Hagen spending the time with us yeah. and, and doing great the photographer, yeah. great, great writer. What about the moment? I mean, you talk you talk about what you want to serve. There are a lot of ways to serve. President of the United States is kind of a singular position. Right. So, I mean, you were asked, to, solicited to run for the United States Senate. You ran for the Senate last year, famously. Um, there are a lot of ways to serve. What about this moment draws you to this race? Yeah. There's no moment like this one. No, no set of challenges like these. Some which we've had for a while and have just become worse. Um, immigration, 30 years and counting for, for any kind of real resolution. Um, and you now have more than a million young people who have already come of age, already contributing in so many ways, teaching, serving in the armed forces, and yet live in the constant fear of deportation. You have folks in, in this country dying of diabetes in the year 2019, people who have insurance but can't afford um, their premiums or their prescriptions. But you also have this singular existential challenge of climate that really has come into focus for me and I think for, for so many people in this country and I hope on this planet. And clear that the warming that we've seen is in part due to our own inaction. And the trajectory that we're on, if, if not mitigated, if, if not drastically changed, um, will consume more of our communities and, and really the lives of the people who will succeed us on this planet, our kids and our grandkids. Those scientists say we've got about 10 to 12 years within which we can act. And, you know, my premise for American exceptionalism and excellence is that you can't meet this kind of challenge by half measure. Um, you've got to be bold and you cannot meet it with half the country. It cannot just be Democrats, cannot just be Republicans. It can't just be those from big cities or those from smaller communities. So bringing people together, going back to El Paso City Council at, at the Village Inn in those town mm -hmm. hall meetings, serving as a Democrat in a Republican-controlled Congress every day that I serve there, and yet being able to expand mental health care access or protect public lands, traveling to each one of the 254 counties of Texas, no matter mm -hmm. how red or rural, how big and blue and urban, um, I, I found that I have an ability to at least be part of um, a, a movement that brings people Why together. Why is that so important? Now, the, the two words that you haven't uh, invoked in, in your presentation is are Donald and Trump. Right. Uh, <clears throat> he's casts a pretty big shadow over this election. It's in, in many ways going to be about him. How does that impact on you? You got into the Senate race in 2018 after that election, you said that it was that election that spurred you to get into uh, the Senate race. So how does, how does he impact on your thinking, your candidacy? In some ways, he's the, the latest manifestation or, or the logical conclusion of this incredibly divisive politics that we have in, in our country. Um, a Republican party that unfortunately, at least those in, in representative offices, has become unmoored from, from science, from the best traditions of, of the Republican Party. Um, but, you know, so many of the problems that, that we're talking about are, are not of his causing. He's exacerbated those divisions. He's worked to make us angry uh, and afraid of, of one another, uh, to try to, um, you know, 
make you afraid of uh, Mexican immigrants that he calls rapists and criminals, or Muslims who he attempted to ban in this country, or calling Klansmen very fine people. And, and we know it's not just the rhetoric, it's the rise in hate crimes every one of the last three years. The mosque in Victoria, Texas, that is burned to the ground on the day that he signs the executive order attempting to ban Muslim travel. But if, if the goal is simply to defeat Donald Trump, then we will not have achieved our true priorities. And, and those can be um, health care for everybody. Those can be an economy within which everyone can participate. That can be meeting this existential challenge of climate before it is too late. If we're not bringing the country together around our ambitions, our priorities, then we will have failed even if we defeat Donald Trump. So, so this cannot be about one man or another political party. It's got to be about the country. Well, it is, it is about the, the quality of our politics. I, one of the things that strikes me about your uh, appeal and your message is even as you speak about all these issues, there seems to be this overriding message, which is one of uh, reunification, of, of, of repairing the breach uh, in our country. That is really what powered your Senate race, and it's very much what you speak about when you're out there. You're making a big bet on, on character, on decency, on uh, finding uh, each other in ourselves and so on, uh, more than any one issue. I'm, I'm making a bet on America, and I have cause for optimism. Um, even in the three weeks of this campaign, we were at Morningside College in Iowa three or four days ago. And um, as I'm introducing myself to those who come out to hear me before I take their questions, this guy is shouting me down. He's up against the wall. He's angry. Um, he's at first muttering. And then as I conclude each sentence, he's, he's riffing on it and, and just saying some really ugly stuff. Um, the crowd kind of helps in, in, in quieting him down. And then afterwards, I answer questions. Folks are coming up to take a picture to say hello. He's at the end of the line. And he says, I'm really sorry. I, I shouldn't have been shouting at you. That wasn't the right way to do this. I really disagree with you on immigration. I disagree with you on guns and some of these other issues. But we should be able to have a, a conversation. I was in Washington this week as well. First time since I was a member of Congress. And I went on a morning run uh, up the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and I'm reading that second inaugural. Holy smokes. Um, he's in the middle of a civil war, not quite yet certain how it is going to end, although things are, are, are going better than they had perhaps the year before. And in it is a call uh, for unity. And in it, he says, who am I to judge? Even though hundreds of thousands of his fellow Americans, many under his command, gave their lives to abolish slavery, who am I to judge. And he talks about, you know, God has given us the ability to see what is right uh, as, as far as, as we can tell. But ultimately, the most important thing for us to do is to bring this country together. And, and it's Lincoln who reminds us that we're the last best hope of earth. And, and I truly feel that those words are more resonant today than, than perhaps since that moment uh, when he was being inaugurated in, in 1865. Um, we, we are the last best hope of earth. Not any one candidate, definitely not a political party, but the American people, the genius of this democracy, which when it works, and, and it's not working right now, but when it works, harnesses the power of hundreds of millions to common purpose with common cause, and then is able to convene the powers of the planet to do the same. Why isn't it working right now? I think you have institutions that have been, for all intents and purposes, captured, corrupted, by those who can pay for access and then outcomes 
Um, you have a Supreme Court decision in 2010, Citizens United, that fundamentally exacerbated some of those divisions and problems. You know, corporations are people, money is speech. Corporations now spending unlimited amounts of money and those prescription drug costs that I talked about or the near impunity with which Purdue Pharma has been able to operate despite the overdose death of 70,000 Americans last year. Um, the fact that we don't make meaningful progress on the things that we care about and yet we're seeing record profits for corporations who just got the, big part of, the biggest part of a $2 trillion tax break at a time that we were $21 trillion in debt. It invites the cynicism and the disengagement and the distrust of so many of our fellow Americans. When you add to that in a state like Texas, you have since Reconstruction, if, if we're going to go all the way back to, to Lincoln, you, you've functionally locked people out based on race and ethnicity and country of national origin from electing those who will represent them or running for office in the first place. We ranked 50th yeah, We can go back to country. Washington on this. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah. so we, we have a democracy that, that has some systemic failings. Um, we have an economy um, that does not work for everyone. And TR, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, in the last progressive response to the last concentration of wealth and power, he says, you're not going to have a political democracy if you don't have something approaching an economic democracy. And we have neither in this country right now. And in fact, things are as bad as they've been in both cases. So we really have our work cut out for us. Let me drill down on that because um, you had some interesting, there is this, it's clear what the president is doing uh, in terms of framing the Democratic Party as socialist. That is what he has said. That is what uh, the Republican talkers are saying uh, about the Republican Party. And they would they would take what you just said and try and fit it into that rubric. But you've also been pretty outspoken on behalf of capitalism. How do you square that? Yeah. So in my history uh, as a small business owner, uh, fortunate enough to start uh, Stanton Street Technology Group with some good friends here in El Paso, had to go to, to the bank for, for a loan capital in order to, to hire people, buy equipment, serve my, my customers and clients, meet that payroll uh, every week. Um, you know, I, I've seen the power of capitalism in, in my own life. And I know that if properly harnessed, that can be an engine not just for growth, but, but for good, a conscientious capitalism that allows us to meet the challenge of climate change, for example. But, but right now, it is a capitalism that has effectively captured uh, at, at its greatest concentrations our, our, our very government. And so, again, much as TR did in, in the last progressive uh, response to this, um, ensuring that power in our economy accrues to everyone, breaking up the big concentrations and the trusts and monopolies back then, perhaps in some of these technology companies and financial uh, industry. Elizabeth Warren has talked today. a lot about that. Absolutely. And I, and I think she's right on to be talking about that. But that, that doesn't uh, accept you from uh, being able to call yourself a capitalist to say that you want a more conscientious capitalism that, that really allows so for opportunity. There for are people, you know, there, there are people out there who argue uh, for a democratic socialism, which is different than socialism, but the word is provocative. Are you worried about that, that that becomes a flare point? I'm not worried about it uh, because my faith is in the people of this country and, and they are smart enough to see through the fear. Um, they're going to read you um, uh, before you can put out the, the first ad or, or send that next tweet. I just had a, a chance to see Al Sharpton in, in New York, National Action Network, and he said a mentor of his was James Brown. And he said yeah. something that James Brown said to him um, that, that's going to stick with me now forever is 
He said, they'll feel you before they hear you. Um, and, and so if what you're saying is real, or if you're trucking in fear or trafficking in lies, people pick that up. They, they, they understand it. There's an extraordinary economist, Derek Hamilton, who has been talking about a more conscientious capitalism and who has accepted the premise, we're a capitalist economy and society, but there are some people who have not had access to it. He talks about the wealth gap between mm-hmm. black America and white America. Jim Crow, segregation, redlining, the inability to afford uh, a mortgage on your home because nobody will lend to you in certain communities. Um, That's produced some of the problems that we have. So his response is not should we turn to a socialist form of of government or economy, but can we make capitalism work for everyone? Get capital out to those communities that have been denied it in the past. And and that raises the economy for, for everybody. You talked a little bit about having to work together. You actually, uh, you know, you said in, in, I, I had a chance to screen this uh, uh, HBO documentary that's going to uh, to appear in May. Uh, and in it, you said something interesting. You said Democrats, this is about Texas, Democrats have played it too safe in this state. They played it too middle of the road. Yeah. Uh, and yet your record in Congress uh, was very moderate. You were uh, uh, more conservative uh, than 75% of your uh, colleagues. You, uh, and just let me run through some of these things. You, you voted against Nancy Pelosi for speaker. You uh, gave President Obama fast-track authority to negotiate trade deals, which is a flare point for some uh, on the left. You voted to expand the death penalty to people who attempt to murder a law enforcement officer. You, you've talked about increasing the Social Security retirement age and means testing of Medicare. Um, are, are these positions going to be an albatross uh, for you in a Democratic primary? You know, just in, in the list that, that you went through, there are some that were, were clearly mistakes. I don't believe in the death penalty, and that, that was a, a, a wrong vote for, for me to take. Uh, Why'd you take it if you don't believe in it? You know, um, threatening the life or taking the life of, of a law enforcement officer is a serious issue. It, it should be a factor in, in the sentencing, uh, but, but it should not contribute towards uh, receiving the death penalty. And so it just a, a clear mistake on, on my part, no, no two ways about it. Um, fast track authority, you know, getting a call from, from President Obama, um, talking through some of the challenges that I had, uh, environmental concerns, human rights concerns, um, concerns with our neighbor here in Mexico, where people are paid 40, 50 bucks mm-hmm. a week uh, to produce the value of the products that we develop together in North America, and then are shopping in the same supermarkets that Amy and I are shopping in here here in El Paso. But I knew that President Obama stood a far better chance of meeting these challenges than did the Republican committee chairs who would have been the ones negotiating TPP if it were not for President Obama. So my faith was in him to negotiate a fair trade deal. Ultimately, TPP was not something that I could support because it didn't meet some yeah, of the concerns but I, that I had. And I'm not asking you to yeah. go, go through the, I mean, you, just the other day you, you uh, spoke to, you were challenged in Iowa, I think, about uh, a, a vote you made for uh, that would have uh, made easier gr- drilling in the in the Gulf of uh, Mexico, which is obviously concerning to people who are uh, about the issue of climate change, among uh, other things. It seems to me that partly what you were doing was voting your district. Is that is that fair? I I think what I was trying to do um, is acknowledge that I, I still drive a truck with an internal combustion engine um, that runs on gasoline. 
And our energy resources right now, primarily fossil fuel based, have got to come from somewhere. And as imperfect as we are in extracting those resources, we do a hell of a lot better job than most of the rest of the world. And so um, as we count our 27th, almost 28th year in Iraq straight since George H.W. Bush first used military force, as we have a president that threatens to use military force in Venezuela, the country that has the largest proven oil reserves, I want to make sure that our energy independence and our national security independence are guaranteed here at home. But I also want to speed the transition off of those fossil fuels to wind, uh, to solar energy. Uh, Texas leads the country, not just in oil and gas, but in the production of wind energy. And the two fastest growing jobs Which we have doesn't today, cause cancer, we should note. Which does not cause cancer, yeah. regardless of what the president says. But, um, but, but the two fastest growing jobs in this country today are, are wind energy jobs and solar energy jobs. So that's my commitment. It's, but you it's apologize for that vote. And it's, you just made a pretty good case for why in the transition it might yeah. be necessary. Yeah. Well, because I think I, 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 think I better understand today the, the urgency of the 10 to 12 years that, that are, are left to us. And I, I mentioned at the outset of our interview, I don't know that you can meet this challenge by, by half measure. I think we really have to be bold. In fact, I know we do if we're going to ensure that our kids and grandkids who will look back on us from the future to the people of 2019, yeah. 2020. I want them to be no, proud I've, of what we did. They, they, you, you, you had this great uh, JFK book, uh, while, while Europe Slept. You had Winston Churchill railing in parliament. You know, the Nazis are arming. Uh, we, we face an imminent threat. Um, and and no, he, was, he was a voice in the wilderness. No one was listening. Uh, I would never compare myself to either of them, but there are people in this country who have been, uh, not for years, but for decades, warning about this challenge. Now many of us, myself included, have, have finally heard the call, and, and we absolutely have to respond. And it is a threat just as, if not more, existential than that that we face. What, how do you strike the balance between the desire for big solutions uh, and your calling for big solutions and, uh, you know, the, the practicality of getting them done and, and presenting big solutions that then become caricatures, the green New Deal, Medicare for all, you've, you've associated yourself with the spirit of those things, but not right. necessarily the letter of those things. Yeah. You know, um, I, th I think you have to identify the problem. Um, you have to lay out the goal and then you have to do everything you can. And it may sometimes be incrementally to get there. And I'll give you an People example. Like, you know, there, there's a frustration with incrementalism. Sure there is. Yeah. Um, but when you allow the perfect to become the enemy of the good, you, you may get nothing at all accomplished. So when I was sworn in uh, to serve my community in Congress, uh, served on the House Veterans Affairs Committee by choice, very often that's the basement to which you were sent if you messed up with leadership. But I wanted to be there because El Paso ranked dead last in the country in being able to see a mental health care provider, not unconnected to the crisis and veteran suicide that we're seeing yeah. in this community and across the yeah. country. Now, I want to make sure that we fix that quickly overnight if we can, but I knew that it was going to have to be a, a process of hiring up the mental health care providers in El Paso, which I helped with, working with Republican colleagues who were in the majority, expanding mental health care access nationally, which we were able to do, mm -hmm. signed into law by Donald J. Trump, a man with whom I agree on almost nothing. If it were my way or the highway, I would have been able to get nothing done. But by conceding a little bit, finding some consensus, some common ground with which to work, we were able to do that. 
protect public lands in El Paso, invest in border security at our, at our ports of entry, improve quality of life here. So I, I think I've been able to demonstrate that, that uh, I've been able to work with those on the other side of the aisle. And I think I've been able to prove that that might be the only, or at least perhaps the best way to, to get something done. So um, I, I think trying to cram it down people's throats is just not gonna work. You, may, you probably saw what President Obama said overseas uh, about his concern uh, about, uh, this was just the other day, his concern that, the, that this sort of demand for absolutism within the Democratic Party could lead to a circular firing squad. Uh, did that resonate with you? I didn't hear his comments, but, but I, I do think we have to be as open as possible, not just to our fellow Democrats, but to independents and Republicans. What we were able to do in Texas over the last two years was made possible by going to Republican communities and listening to their concerns. I'll give you one quick example. Mm -hmm. King County, uh, which may not be the most Republican county in Texas, but the most Republican county in the United States of America, believe voted for Trump 96% in 2016. I showed up there. Their every bit is deserving of our respect, of being heard, of being represented, of being fought for. They're one of the 48 water systems where it's not safe to drink the water. And the county judge there was deeply disappointed in the EPA. I don't get it. Don't you want the EPA's help to, to solve this problem? He said, absolutely. But the EPA came in and imposed a solution without listening to us first. He said, do you think anybody cares more about the drinking water here than I do? Um, so I want to see it at the table. I want to be respected. Uh, and, and whether you're a Democrat or Republican or you don't vote, that, that's human nature. You want to be heard. Um, and I think when we write people off because they don't subscribe to the same solution that we do, then we're going to get what we deserve, which is um, their, their um, uh, unwillingness to participate in the process or in our, campa our campaign. So, uh, yeah, let's bring everybody in. Let me ask you about that. Um, and you sort of answered this question, but is it valuable to be from... Texas or from the middle of the country rather than one of the coasts. One of the things that happened in the last election, I think, is that we all kind of retreated to our silos mm. and didn't see what was happening on the other side of that silo. Uh, do, you, do you think it's helpful to you having traveled those 254 counties? And should is it advantageous for the party itself to have a candidate who does not come from a dark blue state? In this last campaign, we were in Archer County, which you may know from Larry McMurtry and Lonesome Dove. When I was going into Mern's Cafe for our town hall meeting there with 12 or 13 people, this guy pulls out a black and white photo, and it's his dad with LBJ in 48, and he said that's the last time that a Senate candidate from either party came to our community. It had been 70 years since someone had shown up and listened. We, the Democratic Party, have effectively, functionally written off so many parts of the country. Archer County, if Democrats don't go to compete, then Republicans don't have to show up and they can just bank those votes and go home. And those folks effectively are not represented. They're not heard. They don't have a seat at the table. So whether you're from Texas or whether you're from Massachusetts or California, I think it behooves us all to show up everywhere, write nobody off, take no one for granted. Implicit in that is criticism of the campaign in 2016. Well, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, all I know is, is the campaign that I got to be a part of in 2018 was the <laughs> most powerful experience of my life. Powerful because so many people were, were bought into this. I, 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 I've said this before with other candidates as a practitioner. I have to admire the way you navigated around that 
you navigated around that particular question. Let me, um, uh, you, you ran a race, um, well, first of all, Donald Trump himself, he's going to play big in this race. Uh, you know, he's going to live tweet this race. I think 10 minutes after you made your uh, first announcement, he was commenting on your hand gestures right. and, and so on. How, how is that? How do you deal with that? Uh, and how do you, and how do you, how does, how do Democrats generally deal with a president who's going to be right in the middle of their primary nominating process? Yeah. I, I just think you stay focused on um, the reason that you entered the race in the first place, the people who comprise the campaign, um, those whom you want to, to serve and the people you want to deliver for. Um, in New Hampshire recently, uh, we were in Coas and a woman slid across the table her receipt for her prescription medication. She says, this totals 10,000 bucks a year after my copays kick in. Um, I'm supposed to take three of these pills a day. I take one or two so that I can stretch it out for as long as possible. She doesn't want me responding to Donald Trump. Um, she doesn't want me making fun of him. She doesn't want me to descend into the petty or, or personal politics. She wants me to focus on making her prescription medication affordable. And so if we lose sight of why we're running and, and the people for whom we, we, we run, then, you know, we're going to get more Donald Trump uh, go, going forward. So, so his so, caricatures kind of stick, don't they? Yeah. He, you he's, know, low he's, energy. Uh, he's yeah, a master little bully. Marco. And, yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. He's did, good at that stuff. Did you find yourself restraining your hand gestures after that? Um, you know, someone, we were at a house party that same day. And of course, we're going from event to event in, to event, starting in, in Keokuk uh, on the 14th. And I haven't had time to watch the news. Um, so I don't know that this is going on. And, and this woman said, uh, before you start, just know that I love your hands. Uh, <laughs> use them all, all the way uh, as much as you want. So, um, yeah, you just you got to be you. Right. And well, you and, know, this is an interesting point, because being you got you a long way. I mean, you ran a very authentic race for the U.S. Senate. Uh, you know, they, there used to be a song saying the revolution won't be televised. Yours was live streamed. Right. And 24-7 with you all the time, people felt like they were getting the genuine thing. You made a point of not doing polling, not using consultants, not running negative ads, kind of the staples of, of a modern uh, political campaign. And people responded to that. How do you reconcile that now with the task of running for president of the United States? And are you worried about maintaining that level of authenticity while scaling up to the proportions of what this involves. Yeah, you know, I, I just am a, a big believer that the fundamentals are the same, regardless of whether you're running for school board or you're running for president, whether you're running in 2019 or whether you were running in 200 BC. Um, it, it is meeting people, listening to them, learning from them, reflecting what you've learned in the way that you campaign. Uh, my first race for city council, first day, going door to door in the Wrestler Canyon neighborhood. You know, my name is Beto O'Rourke. I wanna see better jobs in our community. I wanna make sure that we, we improve these parks. And um, the, 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 the response is, I want you to save Wrestler Canyon. They're about to develop it. By the third home, I'm Beto O'Rourke and I'm here to save Wrestler Canyon. I now knew by, by listening to folks that that was their most important priority. So in Iowa, same thing, listen to those uh, rural communities. You, there's no doubt that Iowa the Iowa caucuses functionally uh, work the same way. Yeah. When you get past Iowa and New Hampshire, it becomes a much bigger right. uh, thing. So w will you do polling? Uh, are you forswearing doing an ad that mentions an opponent or mentions 
the president. I know you yeah. hired uh, Jan O'Malley Dillon as your campaign manager, who I know well was uh, a senior, uh, you know, deputy manager of the Obama campaigns, highly skilled professional. That's what I'm really asking. Yeah. is like, how are how are you going to yeah. fit into that, and how is yeah. that going to fit into you? I mean, we'll see. Uh, is is the the most direct, honest answer, but. Um, our eight-year-old Henry came home from, from first grade this last spring, and he'd been in an active shooter drill that yeah. his teacher had organized. Uh, made it so easy for me, though I'm a Texan, and running for statewide office in what was thought to be a reliably red state to call for an assault weapons ban, to say that no weapon engineered sold to the United States military to kill people as effectively, as efficiently as possible should be sold in our communities. Didn't pull it, don't want to know how it pulls. I just want to do the right thing. Henry and kids and their teachers across the country are counting on us. So I will never poll to find out what I believe uh, or the popularity of, of a given pro, uh, you know, policy or, or, or proposal. Um, you know, maybe there's a role for polling to say, um, here's where you can best spend, you know, uh, advertising resources mm -hmm. in, in the state it's, of Wyoming. It's essential. I, I don't yeah. know. Because you have to make those allocations. That's right. So. And, and if folks are going to contribute five or ten bucks to a campaign that doesn't take PAC money, I want them to be assured that we're going to use it as effectively as, as we possibly can. But no, we'll, we'll never poll to find out what I believe. I, but I it, but it's going to be an adjustment for you. You know, to some degree, it, it's it's certainly a matter of scale. Yeah. Uh, 28 million people in Texas, 254 counties, um, to uh, a country of of all 50 right. states and in, in, in our territories, and um, trying to make sure that I listen to, uh, learn from, and then campaign in front of everybody. So, are absolutely. you uh, are you going to release your tax returns? You're you're a, you're a person of wealth. Your wife comes from a very wealthy. Family, this has become an issue because the president is the first president since Richard Nixon not to release his tax returns. He's yeah. fighting like hell not to do it now. Uh, and it's become an issue of transparency. Senator Sanders has come under pressure because he didn't do it in the last campaign. Do you think candidates should and will you? Yes and yes. And, and in addition, it, it should be U.S. law that every president releases their, their, their tax returns. Uh, we have a right to know. Um, how our presidents receive their income, uh, where there may be real or perceived conflicts of interest, we can then make better informed decisions. By that same token, everyone running for the presidency should release their tax returns, and, and I will do that as well. And in fact, I'm working with Amy and um, uh, our, our team to, to get those released as soon as possible. You uh, came, uh, one of the things that really brought you to national attention was this uh, spontaneous impromptu answer you gave to a question about Colin Kaepernick, the football, uh, the quarterback who, who took a knee to protest uh, the shooting of, uh, of unarmed African-American kids by police officers. And you defended him and you put it in the context of America's history. Uh, and it was very, very powerful. But you don't have a you don't have a deep relationship with the African American community, and that plays very large in the Democratic uh, race. How, how how do you overcome that? You know, I, I think showing up everywhere, but also showing up for everyone. Um, and it just doesn't mean your your physical presence. It means listening and learning from those who've had a far different experience in life than you have. Um, you know, as, as a white man uh, who grew up in an upper middle class. You talked about white privilege, growing up in white privilege. Absolutely. Growing up in, in, in an upper middle class household. Uh, my parents were small business owners. Recognizing that some communities, we we're talking about access to capital earlier, 
didn't have any access to capital, literally were written out mm -hmm. of the ability to participate in, in our economy. It's not something that I've experienced, and the only way I will even begin to understand it is to listen to those who've had that experience. Um, the largest prison population on the face of the planet, disproportionately comprised of people of color, learning from those who've been through that, in some cases for possession of a substance, marijuana, that's legal or decriminalized in, in most states uh, of this country. Mm -hmm. And then uh, was in South Carolina uh, last week in Rock Hill, getting to meet Willie McLeod, who was one of the Friendship Nine that helped to integrate that lunch counter in that community and, and by extension shocked the conscience of the country by going to jail for 30 days and, and not posting bail. Um, these stories, as well as the stories that we're not comfortable uh, telling, talking to Brian Stevenson mm -hmm. uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, about the lynchings and the Jim Crow laws and the brutality visited on African Americans. So ensuring that, that everyone's story is part of the American story, um, the good, the bad, and the very ugly and shameful as well. And also in the way that I campaign, and not just doing it in certain communities. If it's an all-white audience in Iowa, I'm talking about these very same uh, issues. So I, I think that's part of the way to address that Let me ask that you something on the, on the issue of race writ large. You, you were very tough uh, the other day in talking about uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel, who uh, you may well have to deal with right. uh, if you're president of the United States, and you uh, essentially call him a racist and, uh, and, and were very tough on the pol his policies of, uh, you know, annexing uh, uh, territory that could be part of a, a two-state uh, solution. H how do you? How are you going to work with him? If uh, you know, if you use such sharp language, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not judging the language. I'm just right. interested in how you think about that. The U.S.-Israel relationship has and must continue to transcend partisan politics in the United States and whoever the current prime minister is. In, in Israel, and I'm, I'm confident in the strength of that relationship, and we'll do everything I can to strengthen it even further, including working with Prime Minister Netanyahu, if in fact he is the Prime Minister by January of 2021. But I'm also committed to a two-state solution because it is the best long-term plan for the viability of the state of Israel to be both a democracy and the homeland for the Jewish people, it is the best opportunity for the safety and security of the Palestinian people and a, and a separate independent Palestinian state and their ability to live in dignity. Um, the rockets fired indiscriminately into Israel, the terror under which those people live, um, the use of force uh, against Palestinians and the daily indignity. Have you been there? You, you were on the armed services. Absolutely. Team. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been to uh, I remember being in, in Tel Aviv um, running past the Dolphinarium, um, this discotheque that was uh, blown to pieces, uh, killing many teenagers there by a suicide bomber in Israel, but also in uh, Ramallah, also in, in other there, parts of the West Bank. There's where, div division with I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you. There's division within the. Um, Democratic caucus in the House about this, which is something the president has lit on. You, you are obviously falling on one side of that discussion. I don't know. I, I, again, I hope this, this relationship that we have um, transcends any divisions within the Democratic Party and certainly any divisions between Democrats and Republicans. If this becomes a partisan issue, and, and I know that the people in Israel would agree with us, um, if this becomes a partisan issue in the United States, it will fundamentally weaken 
our relationship with the state of Israel and any hope we have of helping to provide some of the leadership to broker long-term peace and a two-state solution. So um, let's heal those divisions, but let's also, here, here's something that I learned when I, when I visited Israel. If you talk to members of the Knesset, um, and there are almost as many political parties as there are members of the Knesset, their willingness, their tolerance for debate and discussion yes. and, and, yeah. and being able to deviate from the party line is bracing coming from the United States Congress where it is a yes or no proposition and you're almost not allowed to, to have some of these conversations. So, um, you know, friends should be able to, to, to have serious debates and conversations and friends, including the United States and Israel, have to be there for one another, sometimes saying the tough things yeah. that, that you, you President Obama had, the, it, be, it was a tense relationship because he did say those tough things. But l let me ask you this, do you, do you think President Trump is in some way mortgaged to Russia. Why, why is he so reticent about uh, calling uh, Putin out on gaming, trying to game our elections and so on? I don't know that we fully understand the answer to your question. As every American is, I'm very much looking forward to reading the full Mueller report, but his comments on that stage in Helsinki, Finland, uh, next to Vladimir Putin, uh, George Will, um, mm -hmm. fellow pundit, uh, conservative one at that said, you know, if, if you were concerned about collusion, uh, the president's performance in Helsinki was collusion in action, mm -hmm. defending Vladimir Putin, who had sought to undermine our democracy instead of our intelligence community in the United States. Uh, Duterte in, in the Philippines, al-Sisi in Egypt, Erdogan in, in Turkey, uh, Kim Jong-un, who our president says he is falling in love with though he was responsible for the death of Otto Wambir, uh, an American citizen, though he is responsible for the deaths of countless North Koreans, though he holds the power uh, to hold our allies at harm with the nuclear advancements that he's make, made, none of them in any way diminished despite the president's uh, attempts at diplomacy. So he's made his bet on strong men and dictators and turned his back on our fellow Western democracies, uh, Canada, Mexico, the European Union, it's, it's, it's almost inexplicable. Um, uh, but, but I want to make sure that we get to the bottom of that. And more importantly, you, you, I you had at one point had called for impeachment and then you backed off. Why did you back off? So, uh, I mean, I guess to, to be clear, I had never called for impeachment. I had been asked as a member of the House of Representatives if articles of impeachment were before me, would I vote for them? And I said, yes. Um, whether you, you, you follow George Will's logic about, about uh, his attempt at collusion, or if you were concerned about obstruction of justice when he fired James Comey, the principal investigator, into what had happened in 2016, uh, or uh, the president in the light of day tweeting as a, at, a, at his attorney general, Jeff Sessions, to end the Russia investigation. Very clear to me that, that our president tried to stop uh, our ability to understand what had happened to the world's greatest democracy. 243 in, 243 years in, nothing guarantees us another 243 years or another year uh, more. Uh, so this you is would, a defining moment of truth for so us. So you would have voted for them, but you wouldn't have brought them up? What I hear from my constituents, what I heard all across Texas, are the issues most important to them in their lives. Um, those are issues of health care, affordability of seeing a doctor, issues of immigration, living in fear if you're a dreamer, uh, issues of climate, issues of gun violence. Um, so, so those were clearly my constituents 
priorities, and, and that's, that's what I focused on. But I, I never shy away from a direct question and giving it an honest mm -hmm. answer. And so when asked by a, a reporter, that, that was my, my honest answer. I, I cannot help but uh, come to that conclusion that, that the president has committed impeachable offenses. And as you know, under our Constitution, uh, what that means is if he were um, impeached in the House, then you would have a yeah, much higher bar the Senate, yeah. in the Senate um, to, to prove or disprove his culpability for what he had been so impeached for in the House. Right. So, um, yeah. But it's not, but you, at this point, that seems remote. At, at, th at this point, it, it not only is remote, it doesn't seem in any way politically feasible. Mm -hmm. uh, and it would always be a matter of ensuring that Republicans put their country in front of their next uh, election or uh, ahead of their own personal career, which very few of them in elected positions in Congress right now seem willing to do in the face of this president. So our focus has got to be November of 2020 My and then beyond that, January of 2021. Michael Cohen, uh, when he testified privately before the House Intelligence Committee, this has leaked out of that, said he, uh, he believed that, uh, that the president would resist if he were not elected in 2020, that he would resist and reject the result of that election. Is that a, is that a real concern? Just know this. Our current president w will stop at nothing to, to maintain or accrue more power. Um, asking the government of Russia uh, to produce Hillary Clinton's emails as a candidate or uh, on election day in El Paso, Texas, which had had the greatest turnout in the entire state of Texas in 2018, calling for border patrol crowd control exercises in a community that's 83% Mexican American, or on the day that we announce having a number of asylum seekers detained behind cyclone fencing and barbed wire, all of whom disappeared the next day, or sending 5,500 U.S. service members while we're at war half a world away to the U.S.-Mexico border at a time of record security and safety. It's not just his rhetoric. It's the caging of children. It's the practices and the policies and the things that he is trying to do to undermine our democracy and our country. And so I understand just how grave this threat is that he poses, but I also understand defeating him cannot alone be our strategy. Mm -hmm. It has to be coming together around the things that we want to achieve. But, but I understand the risks that we run with this president in power. And I gotta tell you, it's the reason that despite the fact that I love being here in my hometown, and I'm so grateful that Amy and I get to raise Ulysses and Molly and Henry uh, for uh, you know as long as I can over the next two years. I will be in Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada and South Carolina and the other states of this country trying to make the case that we can do far better as a country than we're doing now. Th this is our defining moment of truth and we cannot be found wanting. Let me turn to your history, your personal history. First of all, Beto is not your, that's not the name on your birth certificate. It's Robert Francis O'Rourke. Uh, uh, and, you know, you hear some chortling among Republicans. Well, he's, that's just for advantage. Now, I know I saw a picture of you as a five-year-old with your name, Beto, across your sweater. This was something, this was your nickname from, from, from birth. From birth, yeah. Yeah, my grandfather on my mom's side was also Robert from the South, from Georgia, Robert Lee Williams. Mm. Um, and so with two Roberts, um, I was Beto, which is a very common nickname here in El Paso. If you're Roberto, Alberto, Umberto, uh, uh, you are Beto. Uh, and so really common here, maybe not as common in, in other parts of the country. 
Um, and then some have asked if, if I'm Robert Francis after Robert Francis Kennedy, but uh, my dad was Pat Francis, his dad, John Francis, my son, our, our firstborn, Ulysses Francis. Uh, that's just our, our, our O'Rourke family middle name for, uh, for the men in our family. Um, so yeah, born and raised here in this, in this binational, bicultural, bilingual community, um, and, and hope to have a chance to reflect that um, the genius of, of immigration, our connection to the rest of the world with the rest of the country. Your dad was this larger than life figure. He was a big deal uh, in this community. He was an elected official. Absolutely. Yeah. St still a big deal, at least in my head, although he, he died in 2001, uh, was a county commissioner elected in 78 and then an 82 elected county judge, which in Texas makes you the chief executive of the county. Of the county. Yeah. yeah. And never met a stranger. And still, um, so many years after his death, I, I can't count how many people have come up and said, you know, your dad was my best friend. Um, he had so many best friends, um, loved life, um, you know, got the best out of every minute of it and, and took a true uh, joy in being with people in, in politics. And, and he saw that as not only a, a very high calling and, and a noble purpose, but a hell of a lot of fun. And, and he had a lot of fun while he was doing that. You, um but you didn't have that great a relationship with him when you were a kid. Uh, As a little kid, yes. As a teenager, maybe not unlike other uh, teenage boys, um, he didn't understand. He was what, tough on you. He didn't. Yeah, he was tough on me. He didn't know what planet I was living on. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't know why he couldn't get it. And um, and, and we really had, um, you know, uh, some friction and. Uh, part of leaving El Paso High. You went to you went to prep school and going to a prep school. That was your choice. My choice. I wanted to get out of uh, my house, uh, away from my dad. I also wanted to get out of El Paso and um, you know, see the rest of the world. Uh, and you know, being able to go to Columbia uh, in University. in New York uh, with the help of student loans, with my dad taking out a personal loan, um, working work study jobs every day. Um, you know, I, I got that distance and I think I got that perspective. And then coming back after working in New York for a few years and getting to see him again now as an adult, we really connected. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, um, um, you know, I'm, I'm a lapsed Catholic and I do not go to mass as often as my mom would, would have me go to mass. But, but there was something very special and I feel faded in the last night that he was alive. Uh, for some reason, my sisters, Charlotte and Aaron, were out of the house with my mom, Melissa. And it was just my dad and I, um, and I had moved back home because I was starting this small business and I could no longer afford my rent. I wanted to plow it all into to Stanton Street. And we drank a bottle of wine together, um, ate leftovers out of the fridge, and we just talked for, for hours about life, about my life, about the, the years that we had been disconnected, about what the future might hold. And the next morning he was hit by a car and killed yeah. instantly. And I, I feel how, like I was how, supposed how, to have that conversation. How did that, yeah, how did that, that must have been an unbelievable moment when you got the news that he was gone. Yeah, it, um, yeah. I mean, I, I went through this myself. I lost my father at an early age and it was, uh, it, it, it was, it was indescribable, uh, almost hard to conceive of him not being here. It, it took me a very long time, and, and, and my wife can tell you that, it, that it, is, it is still happening to be able to understand um, and, and accept that. Um, but, um, you know, perhaps in, 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 in a positive way to look at this, he's, he's alive in me. He, he's, what, would he, what advice would he be giving you now? He'd, he'd be telling me to lighten up, 
to, to have fun, uh, to not take myself seriously. Um, uh, you know, he, he, he would love this. Um, he'd love the way that, that we're doing this. Um, you know, he, uh, you know, he, he taught me in, in many ways how to do this, that, um, you know, getting, you know, um, all the details of, of every issue critically important, but, but making sure that you're listening to and connecting with people and that you really and he was hear a them. very grassroots oh, yeah. connected politician. Let me, let me ask you one other question yeah. about him that is, is, is a difficult one, which is he had a scandal. Uh, you were here at that time. You were a young yeah. kid. It, some, uh, so, some powdery substance was found in his county car. Yeah. Evidence disappeared. Yeah. Case was never really resolved. But it effectively ended his political career. And it was big news here yeah. in El Paso. I remember that. How did you? Yeah, yeah well, I'm sure you Headlines do. on the El Paso Times every, every How day. How old were you then? Um, I, I would have been uh, 12 yeah. Years old, which is the that's the worst age my, my worst possible age of, yeah. for yeah. that. How did how did you process that? So my dad in '74 bought a Toyota Land Cruiser, um, brand new, um, and it was the truck he was driving in in '84, and he was on a trip uh, on county business and left his Land Cruiser parked in the in the county parking garage, and as he always did, doors unlocked, probably windows rolled down. Um, sheriff's deputies found a bag in the glove box as they were installing a CB radio uh, so he could listen to the sheriff's department's transmissions and found a powdery substance, cocaine, heroin, something else. I don't know because they flushed it down the toilet. Um, so, uh, you know, my dad's assertion was that somebody planted that in there or stashed it in there, that it was not his. Um, you know, I, who knows what the truth is? I, I, I would believe him. Were you teased? Were you did? Oh yeah, sure. I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm in sixth or seventh grade at the time at Mesita Elementary, the great public school that my kids are going to now. Um, and you know, your dad's on the front page of the papers for, you know, having what may be cocaine in, in his car. Um, that wasn't a lot of fun, but, um, this isn't a great introduction to politics at that moment. Oh no, could you see see yourself going Uh, into politics? I was, I remember, um, I remember coming home from Columbia in my sophomore, junior year, um, and telling my dad who'd taken out these loans for me to be able to go to school that I was going to be an English major. And, you know, just his, the look on his face of (laughs) why would you want to do that? And, and I wanted to, to read, I wanted to write, I wanted to teach. Um, that's what I want to do with my, I didn't, didn't want to be around people. I didn't want to be shaken. I, I, so many events or, or just walking into a donut shop. My dad says, Hey, go, go shake that guy's hand. That's Rogelio Sanchez. He's, he's a County commissioner for the lower Valley. Go introduce yourself to him. That, that was my entire life. And, and I, I wanted none of it. And, and the, the headlines and all that stuff. Um, and, and yet, um, here I find myself, uh, and, and I find myself doing what, I, I'm so grateful to have the chance to do. I, I love being with people. You, in fact, stayed. You weren't. You didn't. Have, you weren't the class president. You weren't in the debate society. You didn't do any of that stuff. You did uh, join something called the cult, the cult of the dead cow, yeah. which were a group of uh, kind of computer geeks and hacktivists right. that really spawned a bunch of people who are now very prominent in the in the social media and internet uh, space. How much did that experience? Uh, help inform your understanding of social media as a tool? Because 
that was really the key to your success uh, or one of the keys to your success in this Senate campaign. Right. It's interesting that we call it a success because you didn't win, but you right. certainly made an impact. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I sixth grade, my folks get me an Apple IIe and a 300 uh, baud modem. And um, I'm dialing in to other people's computers on phone lines. That was the internet at, at the time. And the, the phone line could sustain one call. So you, so you were the only person on that bulletin board reading news that other people had posted, posting your own thoughts or short stories. Including a short story you had to apologize for. Absolutely. I don't know why you apologize for a yeah. story you write when you're 15, but. Yeah, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, um, I, I think it's just reading something. It was kind of a ghoulish. It was, it was ghoulish yeah. and, and obviously in, in, in bad taste, but um, I, I was, it was thrilling to me to be accepted by this world of people whom I'd never met and probably would never meet, and in most cases have not met, um, who lived all over the world. Um, and, and I wasn't particularly coordinated or athletic or popular or you know into the latest trends or fashion. I was a skinny, awkward, gawky kid who wore high water jeans that my mom bought me. And, um, and all of a sudden I was on this online community where I was accepted regardless of how I looked or how athletic I was or was not based on, on what I could write or the way in which I could connect with people. And, and it was absolutely thrilling. And it was a, a very powerful precursor to, to the internet, it showed me the, the way that you could connect with people in that way. You spent, um, you spent about seven years in New York at Columbia and then three years and like in the day, you would have said sort of in a bohemian lifestyle, but you were with your yeah. uh, punk, punk rock bandmates and so on. You were a nanny in New York. The New York Times depicted it as this searching right. period of depression. Yeah. Um, but then you came back. Why did you come back to El Paso? Yeah. So real quick, I would not call it a, a period of depression. In fact, um, short of meeting Amy and, and raising this family in El Paso was the happiest time in my life. Um, we were working jobs um, that, that weren't as important as the music that we were playing, um, the bars that we were going to, the fun that we were having, um, living in, in Wallabout in, um, in Brooklyn, in, in the Williamsburg neighborhood, just, just amazing. But there was this moment, I remember I was on this one hour commute that, that took me from uh, Brooklyn on the JMZ to World Trade Center, from World Trade Center up the east side of the island of the Bronx to the H.W. Wilson Company where I worked as a proofreader. Uh, a job that uh, paid the bills but I wasn't excited about and, and a commute that had me pressed up against the subway glass, sweating. As one does in New York. Yeah, yeah. not excited and, and knowing that I had a one hour commute come back home and I was like, I, I could be back in Texas. There's something there that, that I can do that's gotta be better. I, I can... Um, I can be in the open air, I can be hiking in the Gila, and I can be with my family. And I remember calling my, my folks and I said, you know, at some point I wanna come back home. And my mom said, you know, there's a job, they, she had a furniture store at the time, she, there's a job in the warehouse, it's yours. And so within months, I was driving a truck across the US, landed in El Paso, worked for her for a little bit, and started your business. small business with friends. The other thing that happened when you came back is you had this incident. You were, uh, you, you were involved in a drunken driving uh, incident. S some uh, uh, have suggested that you ran away from the scene of this, but it was a bad, um, it was a bad deal. Um, and it, what, what exactly happened? Yeah, so it was my birthday in uh, 1998. I'd, I'd just moved back. Um, and I was drinking 
and I made the choice to drive drunk. And so there's nothing that can justify or excuse that. Um, and I was arrested as I... I you hit a car? should have been. I, I hit a car. Went over a... Um, spun and, and landed in, in the median of Interstate 10 um, with a, a woman who had been out with me that night with a date. And um, no one was harmed. Um, you didn't try and run away? Uh, we did not try to, to flee the scene. I don't know that either of us were, would, be, would have been capable of, of fleeing the scene. I don't think the car was which, capable which, of fleeing yeah. the scene. Which probably speaks to why you shouldn't have been driving it. But. A- absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, spent a night in jail, um, uh, went to court, uh, was on probation for uh, a number of months, uh, went to the classes that you have to go to, uh, and had my license revoked and you know, was on the bus or, or, or walking to work. But what I have since realized is that that incredibly poor judgment, um, that, that really grave mistake on my part, did not end up defining my prospects. And there are so many people in this country, um, so often people of color, arrested for uh, offenses far less serious, possession of marijuana, mm-hmm. which is decriminalized or legal in most states, who will spend time in prison and upon release be forced to check a box, making it less likely that they get a job on every uh, employment application form. So, so one, um, it has helped me to understand the disparity in treatment based on race um, and privilege in, in this country. Um, two, it, it, is, it is part of the public record as it should be and is a, a factor in anyone's you know, decision. It came up. You, 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 as you point out, you built a, a, a business building websites. You, you had a kind of local news online uh, service. Your dad, I think, blogged yeah. uh, for you. He was a pretty popular blogger Absolutely. on that. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and then you ran for Congress in uh, 2012, and this became an issue in that campaign. In fact, that campaign, you ran against an incumbent, Sylvester Reyes. Barack Obama, Bill Clinton endorsed him yeah. as, as the incumbent. Yeah. Um, it was a pretty nasty race. I mean, you're, you're, you, are, you, you offer payons to the kind of politics that you believe in, um, but that was a brawl. It was. Um, and it was also a really powerful example of grassroots campaigning beyond the TV ads. And, and we were at, at a severe disadvantage in terms of what we could spend. Um, the, the Although real... your, your father-in-law and some others formed a super PAC that ultimately ran a negative ad against Reyes. That was a piece of it. It, it might have been. Um, that ad came in very late. Um, and our door-to-door block walking started Yeah, no, I mean, you, you were famous for it. Absolutely. And, uh, I, and I knew, you know, a month away from that election that we had a shot when um, I'm coming into a, a diner on a Monday or Tuesday and a guy says, you knocked on my grandmother's door on Thursday. I and 31 other cousins had Menudo at her house on Sunday. She made each one of us promise to vote for you. So we're going to, don't mess this up. Um, that, that door-to-door block walking what was the connection. And you won, and you won big. Without a runoff in yeah. a five-person race against an incumbent. Uh, the race against Ted Cruz in 2018, you began as this obscure congressman from El Paso, not well known even in the state of Texas. You became this national figure. You raised $80 million, much of it online. Um, and then uh, I, I mentioned this documentary earlier. Uh, 
it struck me as I watched it, this incredible energy behind your campaign. And then it's over. Mm. You lose, you lose narrowly, did better than any Democrat had in 25 years. But you're going constantly now you're now it's over. And you've said that it kind of put you in a funk. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you come down. I, I came down after we defeated Sylvester Reyes. I remember having breakfast with Amy the next day at Crave on Cincinnati Street in El Paso. And I was like, why am, why am I so bummed right now? We just won this race that no one expected us to pull off. And I think it is, um, you know, the inertia of you're going a million miles an yeah. hour and, and the bus has stopped, the election's over, and your, your body I, and your mind it. are still going. It, yeah, yeah so, so win or lose, I, I think that's a very natural human response. And it takes you a little while to get your bearings again and to find out, you know, I knew what my purpose was every second of every day of that campaign. Um, now the campaign is over. What am I supposed to do right now? And you and how did you come? How did you get go through the process of arriving at running for president? Was there ever a moment when you looked in the mirror and said, wait a second, am I am I ready to be the leader of the free world? Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder if, if you don't ask yourself that question, whether, whether everything's okay um, in, in your head. Um, you know, I think, I think getting out of myself was critical uh, to, to finding the best thing um, that I could do, not for myself and, and, and for my family only, but for the country. So listening to people, meeting people, again, I, I just, I, I feel like I'm in my natural state when I'm engaged with, with others even with, and maybe sometimes especially, we disagree, uh, or we come from different backgrounds or experiences. So doing that in El Paso with, with friends, with folks that I just meet in, in the supermarket, getting on the road and traveling and, and trying to cultivate those experiences, going into a community college or uh, you know, a diner or um, a motel lobby that I'm staying at and just striking up conversations, finding out what's going on in, in people's lives. That was really powerful for me and, and, and really helped reset me uh, and, and, and get me back on track. Um, you, you, you talked about being the son of a politician and how hard it was uh, for you. Your kids, particularly your oldest son, Ulysses, just struggled uh, with your absence, with the candidacy. Uh, and uh, Amy, your wife, has talked about the, the struggles that are in, involved with uh, that kind of enterprise. How much of a, how much of a break was that on you into trying uh, to decide whether to run for president? How are you going to manage that? Initially, as we were considering this, it was the full break. We were not going to do it, um, and and we knew, um, almost without saying it to each other, that that it would just be too hard on our family and on our kids to run. But a couple of things happened in the months after the November election in 2018 we were struck by the resiliency of our kids and without ever bringing the subject up to them, um, surprised by how often they raised it themselves. Dad, um, what do you think about running for president? <laughs> or if you, were, if you run, here, here's what I think you should do. Or I think you should run because of this or that or the other. And then, and then the other even far more compelling reason was that when we decided to run for Senate in in 2018. It was because, in large part, we feared the judgment of our kids. At some point, they're going to look back on us and know what we faced and will judge us based on what we did or what we failed to do. Nothing about that has changed. And in fact, it has only become more urgent. And so really for those kids, 
And, and again, whether it's climate or, or immigration or just having a democracy um, that they'll be able to enjoy and participate in, this is our moment of truth. And we want to make sure, we want to know that we've done everything that we can. And for us, it is serving in this way. Did you uh, seek out President Obama's advice on the family aspects of this or Michelle Obama's advice? My wife read Michelle Obama's book. Um, and I, I could see just her living through that campaign via uh, the first lady um, and, and that being. A, yeah, because a, that a, was a, hard for that her. was a serious break. She, that was an unvarnished look. At oh, yeah. It. And and I, several times, Amy, looking up from the book while we're in bed, saying, I, I don't know that we should be doing this. <laughs> Um, but, but ultimately reading that book and, and her being so um, impressed by how Michelle Obama was able to maintain her independence, her life, um, uh, play not just a supporting role to the president, yeah. but, but play her own role to herself, be yes. true to herself and, and, and who, who she is. Um, and, and then I was very, very fortunate to meet briefly with President Obama uh, in, in, I think, November or December and um, and I, 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 I shared with him how hard that race had been on, on our kids and that I, I told him that some had asked me to think about running for president, but I didn't know if, if our family could sustain it. And without betraying his confidence, I think he, he was just able to, to share with me how, how much of a struggle that really is. And there's mm -hmm. no two ways about it. And, and it really will take a toll. But by all accounts, including uh, the first ladies, um, their daughters are exceptional, extraordinary kids, yeah. young women. And so, um, you know, when I sat down with him and we were talking about whether he would run for president in 2008, this was in late 2006, early 2007. I told him that my fear for him wasn't that he would lose. It was that he would win and that his life would change forever. And you can't change it back. You're in the bubble. You can't get out. I should note you bicycled over here. Yeah. You like to drive yourself right. on the road. Right. Your family has its freedom right now. This is a big sacrifice. Yeah, and, and figuring out how we keep this balance. Um, the first day of the campaign, I called in from Iowa back home, and Amy said, you know, Ulysses was shooting hoops in the front yard, and there was a camera crew across the street filming him. That kind of, that's just weird, uh, and, and it's not right. And... But I'll tell you, in, in um, defense of, of the media in El Paso, uh, we called the local television stations, and all of them were cool. They said, you know what, you're right, we don't need to be doing that. But it'll and be a struggle. Is it worth it? Absolutely. Far more important than, than our privacy is the future of this country and the ability for Ulysses and Molly and Henry uh, to grow up in an America that has met these challenges and has overcome them. Um, an America that has been able to maintain and strengthen its democracy. And, and that's the test that we're under right now. And, and so not only do I know that they'll feel that way down the road, uh, again, I really get the sense from some of the questions they asked us as we were making this decision. They're there. They get it. They, they understand. They're, they're smart kids. Um, and there are a lot of smart kids out there, a lot of, a lot of really, um, really dedicated Americans who, who know that this is on all of us right now. Um, and they want to stand up. They want to be counted. They want to know that, that we've done everything within our power while we still could. And so that gives me cause for optimism and makes me grateful for the chance to run. Well, 
Pero O'Rourke, so good to be with you. Good luck to your family and good luck to you out on the road. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. These are murals. What do those murals represent to you? These murals speak to our culture, our traditions in the largest binational community in the Western Hemisphere. Three million from two countries, two languages who come together here and form one people. And it's, it's something that's really powerful and, and almost magical to me and, and not unconnected to the fact that El Paso is one of the safest cities in the country because there's uh, a culture of mutual respect. Um, everyone is afforded their dignity in, in their life, or at least we try as hard as we can to ensure that that's the case. And so these murals, I feel like, remind me of, of that. This is the crossing to Juarez, Mexico, and how free is that crossing now? How interconnected are the communities? So this is the Stanton Street Bridge. There are five other bridges that connect us to Ciudad Juarez. Uh, 32 million lawful crossings, just like these folks who are going over right now, every year between El Paso and Juarez, about 20% of all U.S.-Mexico trade. So not just El Paso's economy, but by extension, the U.S. economy, somewhere around 6 million jobs depend on what crosses through these bridges right here. So if this got closed down? You'll close down the U.S. economy, a absolutely. And, and you will, by definition, make us less safe because those CBP officers who are there, they're the ones who inspect everyone and everything that comes into this country. Um, if you don't have that inspection, uh, there's still gonna be some folks passing through who we will not know what they're bringing with them or if they have status or if they should be in the United States of America. You, you uh, this was not, this was a different kind of border and a different crossing when you were a kid growing up. Yeah. Uh, tell me how it's changed. So El Paso's always been, or for a long time, for 20 years and running, one of the, the safest cities in America. You know, safe not because of walls. Uh, the wall came in, in 2008. Uh, safe because of our people, our local law enforcement, uh, a community of, of trust where regardless of your immigration status, you feel free to report a crime or serve as a witness or, or testify in a trial. After 9-11, um, and certainly after the Secure Fence Act of, of 2006, you really saw uh, an almost militarization in, in border communities like ours. And, and beyond... Unnecessary, you think? Unnecessary and beyond... You talked about tearing down walls. Uh, do you still... That, that was, there was an interview in which yeah. you did. you still feel that way? I do. Now, I'll also say that there are some places where physical barriers make sense. And, and we've always had them on the border. So I was born and raised in El Paso. There, there were you know, fences uh, in some parts of our connection with Juarez um, you know, as I was growing up. But, but this uh, military grade, 30 foot high, steel slat and, and, and concrete uh, you know, um, base, th that's new. Um, and, and it's really, one, unnecessary. It has not improved our safety. In fact, our safety actually declined after the construction of, of the wall here in, in El Paso. What you we think really that was connected in some way? You know, I, I think when, when you introduce greater fear and distrust in a community, uh, fewer people are willing to work with local law enforcement because they think that their immigration status may become the focus instead of the crime that they're trying to prevent or report. So yeah, um, when, when a, a woman's seeking a protective court order because her husband's 
beaten her up and she is undocumented, goes into a courtroom in El Paso and gets the protective court order. And then when she's leaving, Border Patrol agents take her into custody. That had never happened before. And what that did is it sent, uh, you know, a, a shock of fear through the community and made it less likely that other women and other men for that matter are, are going to come forth. So security is purchased not through walls and militarization. Security is purchased through treating people with respect and dignity, knowing who and what is crossing our ports of entry. That's why John Cornyn, my Republican senior senator and I worked on investing in staffing and technology and infrastructure at our ports and then comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, as, as President Obama attempted to do in his administration, uh, he said, if, if people come forward into the light, out of the shadows, we will now know who they are, uh, what they can contribute to our country's success, and if they pose a danger to any of us, deport them back to the country from which they came. Um, so security can come through immigration reform, investments at our ports, and, and treating people with respect. Um, the, the, the opposite, these ICE roundups, these walls, uh, calling Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals, that makes us less, not more safe. What do you think about this uh, sentiment uh, about disbanding ICE? I don't think it makes sense, uh, but I think that it is coming from a good place, which is these internal enforcement measures. Um, bad under President Trump, bad under President Obama, where in one year alone of his administration there were 400,000 people rounded up and sent back to their countries of origin, breaking up families in the process. If the intent was to purchase a little political will in order to get comprehensive immigration reform done, it, it, it obviously didn't work. And so I think we need to make sure that, that the two are understood to be one and the same. If you do move forward with immigration reform, you get security as a natural byproduct uh, of that. So we don't need to do these internal uh, roundups, but there does need to be an agency responsible for the enforcement of our immigration laws internally when people do pose a violent threat to others in, in our communities. As we look out on that bridge uh, crossing the border, uh, the president has essentially forced the resignation of his Department of Homeland Security uh, Secretary uh, Kirsten Nielsen, and he's indicating that he wants a tougher policy, perhaps uh, reincorporating uh, family separation. What's your reaction to all of that? What he has done in the name of this country, um, taking kids from their parents after they've survived a more than 2,000 mile journey, some of it on foot, some of it atop a train known as the beast, arriving here at their most desperate and, and vulnerable moment, uh, deporting that mom back to the very country she fled and then putting that kid in a cage um, and and many of those families still separated um, and and will be separated until we find the political will to do the right thing um, you would like to think it's un-american but it's happening in this country and he's threatening to do it again right now so um, not only must we follow our own asylum laws which he is clearly breaking not just in the way he's treating these asylum seekers, but by preventing them from lawfully seeking asylum at this port of entry and forcing them to cross in between the he ports of Nielsen entry. He and Nielsen say we should change those laws. I mean, that's their argument that the laws, it's the flaws in the laws. Yeah, and, and here's what he's gonna do. Uh, whether this is the intent or not, he's going to cancel out half a billion dollars in aid to Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. That is gonna make those problems in those countries even worse. You will see an even greater flow of people heading north, coming here, that no wall or militarization or policy 
is going to stop. They are desperate doing exactly what I would do if my kids were in the same danger that their kids are in right now. So instead, we should be investing even more, double what we're spending today in the Northern Triangle of Central America. Focus that not on military equipment, but on violence reduction and prevention in those communities. Where we've been successful in doing that, we've seen a, a net decrease in outflow. What do you think his motivation is? I mean, is it to keep the country safe? No, be because everything he's done is having the opposite effect. The militarization, the fear, uh, the way in which the law is being enforced, the way in which the law is being flouted, um, not only is un-American, in my opinion, it is making us less safe in these very communities, less safe as a country, and we're turning our back on who we are as Americans. We are a country of asylum seekers and refugees and immigrants. But here's what I'm asking you as a matter of politics, because you've been in the business of politics. Uh, do you think that he sees advantage in torquing up the crisis? Donald Trump is the arsonist who gets the credit for putting out the fire. So the headline I saw in USA Today this weekend was uh, president to keep ports of entry open. I mean, he was the only one who was threatening to close them and now he gets credit for opening them. He is going to cause worse out migration and asylum seeking from Central America by cutting off all US aid. And then he wants, to be the, he wants to be the person who gets the credit for stopping it. What we need is someone who will not play games or politics with people's lives or the security of this country, but will invest in the smart decisions and policies like investing in Central America to stop the outflow before it even begins. We can try to address these problems at the U.S.-Mexico border with walls or open arms, or we can address them in the countries of origin before they ever become a problem. And that's what I want to do. You know, I saw a clip. I saw a clip of you watching a tape of your father yeah. talking about this very issue uh, of border crossings in much the same terms. Um, and you seem moved uh, to watch it. Uh, do you feel that connection over time? I do. And, and I think what moved me about my dad's response back in the 1980s was that he saw himself in those who are looking for a better life. Um, and I just think we are so much stronger as a country when we see ourselves in one another, when we see a common future for all of us who are here. Um, we have a president right now who is trying to divide us, keep us apart, make us angry and afraid, preventing us from realizing our full potential or living to our full promise. Um, I think the opportunity for us right now is to do the opposite, bring people together regardless of the differences, uh, whether that's your party affiliation or the number of generations that you've been here or whether you just got here yesterday. We're all in the same country now with the opportunity to do something great for America. The president says the country's full. That was his message to immigrants right. who went to the border. Right. And that was his message that, sorry, there's no room at the inn. Go back where you came from. And because you have traveled around quite a bit and you have traveled through uh, all kinds of communities in this country, you know that there is a certain resonance to that with some uh, Americans and some voters. You know, I, I haven't found that actually. I was just in Storm Lake uh, in, in Iowa eating some pan dulce at Delicias Bakery. 
um, talking to Mexican immigrants who came to work at the Tyson's plant that no one born in Storm Lake is working at right now. And they're investing in the success of that community and the people in that community get it. Revitalizing rural America in part depends on ensuring that immigrants can find a home in rural America. Our success as farmers, as an economy, as a country, as a democracy uh, is necessitated upon uh, new people coming in to reinvigorate this country. So, um, he what said, I hear, so he's, he's, he says he's going to make immigration a centerpiece of his campaign, and your answer is bring it on. Absolutely. There, there's, there's this community of El Paso Ciudad Juarez um, that is the positive example of why immigration matters, why it makes us safer, why it makes our economy stronger, why it creates more jobs for our fellow Americans, no matter how many generations you've been here. And, and the, the proof of that is, is, is where we are right here in El Paso. So I'm looking forward to sharing that message and talking about safety and economic growth and jobs in a positive way that includes all of us. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.